Esther chapter 8 will be our text for this evening. We'll consider the entire chapter in a message that I have entitled this evening, Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father God, I thank you that we can come tonight. I thank you that we can offer our prayers and petitions unto you. I do thank you that you delight in our prayers and you will answer our prayers according to your will, Father. I do thank you now um, for the opportunity that I have to open your word. Um, I do pray you would grant me wisdom um, as I share what I've studied this week, Father. And I do pray that the Holy Spirit uh, would do his work this evening. I pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Have you ever found yourself questioning a political policy or decision? You read of a particular policy that has been implemented or a decision that has been made and you think to yourself, what are they thinking? Of course that won't work. Everybody can see that this is a bad idea. And sure enough, some months later, the government is scrapping this particular policy or reversing the decision that they made. And you think to yourself, I told you so. Of course, that would not work. Imagine in these situations, when we question the government's policies and decisions, if they were irrevocable. That meaning, when they had been implemented, they can never be revoked. They will always stand. I am thankful that this is not the case in the Australian government system, but not every government is structured this way. The Persian form of government, which is the particular time period Esther is located in, was vastly different. Once a king issued a decree, that was it. That was final. It was irrevocable. And this is the situation before us. Although Haman was now dead, his murderous edict was still very much alive. Unless something amazing occurred in the next nine months, millions of Jews were set to lose their lives. The situation was looking rather grim. But the Lord had brought both Esther and Mordecai to this place for such a time as this, and they were prepared to act. It is dealing with this irrevocable decree that will be our focus for this evening. And we'll do this under four headings. They being the repossession, the request, the resolution, and the rejoicing. Firstly, let's consider the repossession. The repossession. We see this in verses 1 and verse 2. Verse 1. On that day did the king Ahasuerus give the house of Haman, the Jews' enemy, unto Esther the queen. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was unto her. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Verse 1 begins with the phrase, On that day. This referring to the death of Haman. So the forthcoming events occur on the very day of the execution. We can safely concur from the text that Haman was executed as a criminal. We can know this because the king gives Esther the house of Haman. 
The word house refers to his entire estate, not just the building that he lived in, but everything that was his. We see from the text that for the king, in order to be able to give this unto Esther, must have been in possession of it. But how is this so? The answer is that in those days, the property of a criminal became the king's when the criminal was executed. So we can safely ascertain that Haman was executed as a criminal. His property was forfeited unto the king, who then gave it to Esther. We must remember that Haman was an incredibly wealthy man. And now everything that he possessed belonged to Esther. And just maybe the great wealth of Haman was later used to fund the Jewish defense campaign, further highlighting the great irony in this situation. Why the king decided to bestow such wealth on his bride, we are not told. But more than likely, this was the king's way of atoning for his foolish decision. Like today, when a man buys his lady friend flowers or a gift when he has done wrong. Except in this case, such was the magnitude that flowers would not cut it. The surprises at this time just keep coming for Xerxes. First the banquets, then the requests, leading to him finding out that his wife was Jewish and he had unknowingly signed her life away. And now he finds out that this man Mordecai, who had saved his life, was actually related to his wife. The phrase, what he was unto her, in verse 1, not only denotes blood relation, but it also signifies the quality of the particular relationship. Mordecai was not only her cousin and father-type figure, but this was a close, intimate relationship. Esther held him in high esteem, and she thought the king should also, and he certainly obliged. We see this in verse 2, where we are informed that the king gives his ring unto Mordecai. This ring was the signet ring. It empowered Mordecai with the authority of the king. He was now delegated the important responsibility of taking care of the day-to-day government business. In other words, he took over the position that Haman had occupied. But not only did Mordecai receive this prestigious and powerful position, but Esther also bestowed upon him all that was Haman's. She wanted him to be the steward of all that had belonged to him. Now, oh, how things had changed. The tables were continuing to turn against Haman, even after his death. The one who Haman had hated so much, who he had endeavoured to have put to death, now he occupied his position. It was he who held great favour with the king. It was he who had in his possession all that was previously Haman's. Now what great irony. How easy it is in these first couple of verses to get caught up in this little subplot where God puts his man in the right position, in the right way, at the right time, acquiring all that had belonged to the one who had almost taken his life. That we almost forget that this is not the main part of the story. 
the main part of the story was that the Jews, God's people, were in trouble. And this has not changed. Something still needed to be done. This leads us to our second point, which we see this evening, which is the request. The request. We see this in verse 3 through to verse 6. Verse 3. And Esther spake yet again before the king, and fell down at his feet, and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite, and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king, and said, If it please the king, and if I have found favour in his sight, and the thing seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews which are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Whether these events occur instantly after the previous verses, or whether there is some time delay, the scholars debate. But what we can be sure of is that Esther was not content with what had been achieved so far. She was not satisfied with the wealth, the prestige, and no doubt the personal security that was hers. This all meant nothing as long as her people were still in great danger. She knew that Haman's evil had not ceased despite his death. In verse 3, we get a glimpse of the care and compassion that Esther has for her people. She wasn't content with what had occurred She wasn't selfishly going to stop short at personal deliverance, but she comes boldly before the king, remembering that if the king does not extend his scepter, life's over for Esther. But there is no hesitation. She courageously pleads for her people. Notice the great emotion and compassion. She falls down at his feet and besought him with tears. She was pleading with great passion that the lives of her people be saved. Such was her care and compassion. She had a burden for her own people. This particular scene reminds me of a passage of Scripture in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, where the Apostle Paul reveals his great passion that his own people would be saved. Paul was willing that he himself would be accursed so that his own would be saved. And this is the same desire of Esther. She would do anything for her people to be saved. The lesson I think here is rather obvious. Esther was not content with her own comfort, but couldn't rest until her people were delivered. The question is, how much do we desire to see our people saved? Do we have this burning desire for the lost? Do we, like Esther, come before the throne of our king, pleading for the lives of the lost, our family, our friends, our community? Unfortunately, how often we are content with our own comforts, our own lives, that the thought of those who are lost around us doesn't even cross our minds. We today need to be more like Esther, 
whose burden for condemned people was greater than anything else in her life. In verse 4, the king yet again shows grace unto Esther by extending out his golden scepter. And immediately Esther takes advantage of this and poses to the king her solution to counteract the wicked plan of Haman. In presenting her solution, she shows yet again great respect, honor, and courtesy. She is extremely diplomatic and careful in this delicate situation. But she also plays the emotions and desires of this man perfectly. She skillfully uses her own feelings and the king's favorable disposition towards her to secure his permission. Her desire is that a decree be written to counteract the wicked decree that had been approved. She knew this decree couldn't be cancelled, but just maybe another decree could be invoked that would allow the former decree to be defeated. And just in case enough emotion was not already, already involved, she poses two rhetoric questions in verse 6 to further target the heartstrings of this man, to convince him to approve of another decree to spare the lives of her people. But how would the king respond? It's rather evident from what we have studied, this man is incredibly selfish. But one gets the impression that Esther is working him like a potter works his clay, or more accurately, God is working this man. What the proverb says about the king's heart being in the hand of God is so true in this situation. This leads us to our third point. Let's consider the resolution. The resolution. This is seen in verses 7 through to verse 14. Verse 7. Then the king Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Write ye also for the Jews, as it liketh you, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name, and sealed with the king's ring, may no man reverse... Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month Sivan, on the three and twentieth day thereof. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews, and to the lieutenants, and the deputies, and rulers of the provinces, which are from India unto Ethiopia, a hundred and twenty-seven provinces, unto every province according to the writing thereof, and unto every people after their language, and to the Jews according to their writing, and according to their language. And he wrote in the king Ahasuerus name and sealed it with the king's ring and sent letters by post on horseback and riders on mule, camels and young dromedaries wherein the king granted the Jews which were in every city to gather themselves together and to stand for their life to destroy, to slay and to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them both little ones and women and take the spoil of them for a prey Upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar. 
The copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all the people, and that the Jews should be ready against the day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So the posts that rode upon mules and camels went out, being hastened and pressed on by the king's commandments. And the decree was given at Shushan, the palace. After the request had been made unto the king, we are informed that both Mordecai and Esther are present before the king. Xerxes, perhaps somewhat perplexed, reminds them both as to everything that he has done to help them, to help the Jews, this perhaps endeavouring to show that he loves the Jewish people. Or maybe he's declaring, what else do you want me to do? I can't do anything else. It's now up to you as to what you do next. Verse 8 begins with an emphatic statement, Write ye also. This is giving permission and power to Mordecai and Esther, particularly Mordecai, to draft a new decree. They could write whatever they wanted. The king gives his permission that this decree can be written in the king's name and it could be sealed with the king's ring. At the end of verse 8, the king reminds us that these decrees are irrevocable. This is probably a reference both to the decree of Haman and also the decree that was about to be written. In verse 9, we get a glimpse of the Persian procedure for writing edicts, and this is testified in secular writings. The king's scribes would be brought in. These would be very intelligent men, remembering that not too many people can read and write well at this time, let alone know numerous languages. And it was their job to write down the decree, write it down word for word, and then to translate it into the various languages throughout the entire empire. Remembering there's 127 provinces, so who knows how many languages there would be. We are informed in verse 9 of the date that this particular edict was penned. It was on the 23rd day of the third month. And this is exactly 70 days since the first edict was composed. We're told in chapter 3, verse 12, that the first decree was penned on the 13th day of the first month. It's very interesting that they were under this curse for exactly 70 days. The number 70 is very significant with Israel, isn't it? They were in captivity for 70 years. Daniel speaks of the 70-week prophecy, and here they are under this curse for 70 days before action was taken. It is extremely interesting to compare this portion of Scripture with the first decree recorded in Esther chapter 3. There are many similarities. In fact, it is as though Mordecai purposely mimicked the decree of Haman. And this is the chart on your outline sheet. The first similarity is seen in chapter 3 verse 9 and chapter 8 verse 5, where both Haman and Esther declare, if it please the king. Then in 3.10 and 8.8, we see the king giving his signet ring, to the two different men, so the decree can be approved. 
in 3.12 and 8.9, the scribes are called to officially document this decree. In 3.12 and 8.11, it is delivered to the lieutenants and to the rulers. In 3.13 and 8.11, three particular words are used. To destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish. Now, the English translation translates one word different, but the three Hebrew words are all the same. In 3.13 and 8.11, women, children, and the spoiling of possessions is specified. And in 3.15 and 8.14, both were sent throughout the 127 provinces speedily. So it's evident that there were vast similarities in these two decrees. But some significant differences must be pointed out. This second decree was a decree of life for the Jews, whereas the first was one of death. And also this decree of Mordecai was a decree of self-defense. And it's vital that we understand this. The Jews could only defend themselves. They were not to be the aggressors or the attackers. And this defense was limited to but one day. The one day that Haman had decreed would be the annihilation day. Mordecai in this decree instructs the Jews to gather themselves. The Hebrew word that is used here is often in reference to gathering an army. And this is the idea that Haman instructs. But without the king's decree, this gathering of an army would be viewed as rebellion and the king would deal with it swiftly. Mordecai instructs the Jews that they were to get themselves ready in this period of nine months to defend themselves against the attacks that were coming. And this means it's evident that it was not only Haman who hated the Jews, but there must have been many throughout this entire empire who hated God's people. Oh, how some things never change. Now, there is an issue that many have with this passage of Scripture. It's whether this decree was ethically correct for God's people. Now, I will address this in the study next week. But needless to say, we must remember that this is virtually a mimic of Haman's decree. And that is why it is written the way that it is. And what is included is included. And we must also remember that this is a self defense but we will consider this in more detail next week with this decree now complete and translated into the various languages this edict for self-defense is quickly transported throughout the entire empire particular emphasis is placed on the urgency and the speed at which these decrees were delivered In fact, just like the first decree, the king added a commandment to this to hasten the delivery speed. And it was soon spread throughout the entire empire, all 127 provinces. And just like when the first decree was made, and it was made known to the people, great emotion was also expressed when the second decree was made known But oh, how different the response was this time. And this is what we will consider fourthly. We will consider the rejoicing. 
rejoicing. This is seen in verses 15 through to 17. Verse 15. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and with a great crown of gold and with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. And many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Verse 15 begins by describing the new clothing of Haman, which testifies his promotion to second in charge. He was now dressed in these beautiful royal robes. He was now wearing a golden crown. How different from the sackcloth and ashes that he was wearing after hearing the first decree. In chapter 3, verse 15, the people of Shushan are described as being perplexed after hearing the first decree. But now after hearing this second decree, they were rejoicing, they were glad. The particular four-pronged description of the Jewish response in verse 16, I think is best seen in contrast to chapter 4, verse 3. In chapter 4, verse 3, they are described as mourning, fasting, weeping and wailing. How different to now in verse 16, where they are described as having light, gladness, joy and honour. Oh, how things had changed for the Jewish people. They were condemned and now there was hope. And this brought them great joy. The proclamation of Mordecai caused celebration rather than the previous lamentation. And this brought about feasting rather than fasting. Chapter 8 begins with Esther in tears, but it ends with the Jews rejoicing and feasting. Verse 17 informs us that this rejoicing and joy was not restricted to Shushan, but went out into the various cities. And one doesn't have to have much of an imagination to understand this. Imagine if we were on death row. There was no chance of us getting off. After 70 days, we receive this message that we are going to get off. Imagine the great joy. Consider a Jewish father at this time, who for 70 days had thought that his wife and children were going to have their lives taken. And now... There is hope they could be spared. This is going to produce great joy. Such was the joy and rejoicing of the Jews that it had effect, an effect sorry, on those around them. We are informed that many people became Jews. The particular Hebrew verb that is used is not found anywhere else in the Old Testament. And it literally means to Judaize oneself. The Gentiles were converting to Judaism. Many debate whether this was a genuine conversion, 
or whether this was just because it was obvious the Jews were highly favoured by the king. So they decided it would be smart to side with the Jews and act like them. But it does seem that perhaps some genuinely converted to Judaism because of the great joy that the people possessed because they believed that this edict would be fulfilled. This desire of the Gentiles shows the great change that had occurred in the Jewish situation. They were now on death row, but now they occupied a position of privilege. God's hand was evidence for all to see. God protected his people. In Esther chapter 8, I believe there is a very interesting picture throughout. And this is our salvation experience. Let me explain. We as sinners were under a decree that sentenced us to death. Just like this first decree. God is holy. God must punish sin. The punishment being death, both physical and spiritual. This is what was hanging over our head. We, just like the Jews, had a decree over ourselves that we could do nothing about. We were doomed to hell. But just like the Jews, a second edict was made to counter the first. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and dealt with the first edict. He paid the sin price that was hanging over your head, that was hanging over mine. And now we are no longer doomed. We, like the Jews in our text, now have hope. This narrative is a wonderful picture of our salvation experience And within it, there are many truths and lessons that are relevant to our lives. And this evening, I wish to close with just three. So number one, the call to spread the gospel. The call to spread the gospel. Within this narrative, the good news of the edict was spread quickly. Particular emphasis is placed on the speed at which it was delivered. If this edict was delivered so quickly, with such great enthusiasm, how much greater is the call to spread the gospel, which is the edict of eternal life? If a group of pagan scribes and messengers, without modern means of communication and transportation, could take Mordecai's decree to an entire empire... How much more should we Christians take the message of eternal life to this lost world? We, just like these scribes and messengers, have been commanded by our King, our King being God, Jesus Christ, to take this gospel message and to tell the world. But how often we are slack, we are slothful, and we are disobedient. When was the last time you shared the gospel? You know, you have a glorious message. Don't keep it to yourselves, but be like these messages and spread the good news enthusiastically and quickly. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel 
That is not an optional extra for us as believers, but a command. This is our job. This is why we are here. Are we doing it? Second lesson we see is the clothes that are ours. The clothes that are ours. What a great change that had occurred in Mordecai. After the first edict, he rent his clothes and wore sackcloth and ashes. And after the second edict, he wore the robes of royalty. And as I pondered this, I couldn't help but to think of what we have in Jesus Christ. We, like Mordecai, were clothed in these filthy garments, the putrid clothes of sin. Yet when we came to Christ, He removes those putrid rags and clothes us in royal robes. In fact, He clothes us in His very own righteousness. Our sin is imputed to Christ and His righteousness is imputed to us. Isaiah 61.10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Beloved, we have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because of this, We can come before the throne of grace and when God looks upon us, He doesn't see you, He doesn't see me, but He sees the righteousness of Jesus. And this is a glorious truth. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Number three, we ought to be joyful. We ought to be joyful. The Jews, when they heard of this second decree, were filled with much joy. How much greater should our joy be considering what we have? We are saved from eternal damnation. We are redeemed. We belong to Jesus. And this, beloved, should cause a rapturous joy in our hearts. Yet how often we as Christians are miserable. We are the cranky pants of this world. But if we truly meditate and truly understand what we have in Jesus, there can be no other response except an overflowing joy. We as believers need to manifest the joy of our deliverance from sin, just as the Jews manifested joy and their deliverance from their enemies. Matthew Henry said, The holy cheerfulness of those that profess religion is a great ornament to their profession and will invite and encourage others to be religious. The sad, frowning, negative Christian is a poor advertisement for the faith. If a person has really believed the Word of God and become saved, there will be some real joy in their heart and this joy will show... Another commentator said, if you have no joy, in your, no joy in your religion, there's a leak in your Christianity. If only we today manifested more of the joy of the Lord, 
Perhaps those outside the faith would be more attracted to the church and be willing to consider the message of the gospel. It's definitely worth trying, isn't it? Be joyful, be glad, rejoice in the Lord. Amen. Let's pray.